0: If you join me in Bible study tonight, as we continue our questions and answers submitted from around the world, we start tonight in Mark chapter 13 with verse 32. Mark chapter 13 is parallel to Matthew chapter 24. And it's where the disciples are asking Messiah about the end of the age and about his coming and the destruction of Jerusalem and those kind of topics. And in verse 32 it says, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then let's compare that to Matthew 24, because the question is about the difference between the two. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 says, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. Why does Mark mention the son and Matthew does not? So the question is they're both referring to the same topic, but why would Mark's version include the son as not knowing the day and hour. The first thing I'd like to note is what? It doesn't say, no one knows the day or the hour. That's what we keep hearing that it says. But it says, but of that day and hour, of that means concerning. What's it going to be like? It's not necessarily asking the day and hour that it begins, although it's interpreted that way. So, if we, if we look at it that way, then let's delve a little farther into the Greek, where it's, in both cases, it says, but only the Father in Mark and my Father only in Matthew. In both those cases, what the Greek actually says, if not, so Mark 13:32 actually reads, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, if not the Father. And if you look at it that way, it would mean if God doesn't know, then nobody would know. But again, that's not the way it's usually translated. So to get down to the best answer I can give, number one, which of the two was there when Messiah said it? Matthew was. Wasn't Mark there? No. So Mark has received it secondhand. Who did he hear it from? He heard it from Peter. Was Peter there? Yes. So if Peter had written Mark, then it would be first-hand knowledge, and we would expect the accounts to agree. But did you ever play the game where you pass a message on to the first person, and the second, and the third, and eventually gets back, and you laugh at the way it got distorted? So it's possible that um, Mark just heard from Peter and the son, Another possibility is that it was added to try and support the doctrine of the Trinity. But I don't know. In either case, if you look at it as no one knows the day or the hour, that's classic wedding talk. If you were to ask a bridegroom back in the first century, when is the wedding? The response always would be, no one knows but my father only. Because after the betrothal, the bridegroom goes back to the bridegroom's father's house to build the bridal chamber. And if it was up to the bridegroom, he threw up a lean-to and go get the bride. But that's not the way it works. He's got to spend at least a year and not more than two building the bridal chamber. And it's not ready for him to go get the bride until the father tells him it's time to go. So that's the way this is normally interpreted is that it's wedding talk. There is no way that Messiah, who knows the very day he's going to die, how long he'll be in the grave, when he's going to arrive, out of the grave, doesn't know when he returns. Especially when it's given to us in such specificity back in the book of Hosea. So those are the comments I have on that. Does anybody have anything else to add? Yes. Um,
1: I have a thought that there are things... That are conditional.
0: There are things that are conditional, but this is not one of them.
1: But I'm saying since there are things that are conditional, people's response, people's actions um, there are conditions that can even change a wedding date and hour. That's true. Um, and it's it's always possible. I mean God's grace is open. He's it's not the Father's will that any should perish. Right. So the conditional thing that I'm thinking of is um, really his response to, is determined in part uh, our response. And then he gives us the commission and yeah. whether we obey that or not. So many things play in. If he knows the exact day and hour and, and everything between here and there, there's no point in us being here. Because we don't have any free will, but and, and you know the arguments for all that. But yep. It's just like it, it, a possible thing to throw into all this thing is there are conditions, there are hopes, God has expectations, and and He still is leading people and guiding people and putting up with our faults, of course. But yep. so there, there's a there's something to be said for even saying. Not even God the Father knows because He hasn't said it yet. He hasn't,
0: whatever. Unless we go to Zechariah chapter fourteen.
1: Does it give us the day and the hour? <laughs>
0: it says in Zechariah fourteen seven, it shall be one day which is known to the Lord. And who's the Lord? That's Yeshua. That's, Yeshua, that's God. So it's not possible that the Lord doesn't know because he says here that it is known. So it's already set.
1: Again, you could almost read that it's to be known.
0: Okay. But doesn't God know the
1: beginning from the end? Yeah. He, knows.
0: he does. To yeah. To the end. But it's just another aspect to consider.
2: Mm-hmm. Look at 2 Peter 3. It says, God Look at 2
0: Peter 3.
2: Peter says that. Is that nobody should
0: Peter said, God is long suffering, not one of these should perish, but is the next word. The
2: day of the Lord, which
0: day is of the Lord coming, will come.
2: Which is that day that's known to the
0: yeah. You
2: now, could it also be back in Mark where it says, Nor the Son, but only the Father? Could that be his way, Yeshua's way? He was always directing worship to the Father. Could that be the case here?
0: Possible. But they're quoting the very same words, the very same sentence. And it's odd that one contains the Son and one doesn't. My best thought is, Matthew was there, Mark's heard it secondhand. But always in the back of my mind, there's the possibility where the words added, that I don't know. I should one day look and see if I can find a copy of Mark in Hebrew, because I've seen a copy. I just don't know that I have a copy. But that's the best I can do anyway. The next question says regarding believers being made kings and priests in the kingdom. Revelation 1.6, Revelation 5.10, 1 Peter 2.9. We'll look at those in a minute. These roles as kings and priests would preclude women from participating in either of these categories. So what will the women be doing person wants to know are they going to be baking or are they going to be cleaning house what are they going to be doing it says is it possible that women will be judges like 1 corinthians six two and three based on the precedent of deborah having been a judge and why will the world under messiah's reign need so many kings priests and judges if yeshua is in charge he won't need our help Or might he be preparing those appointed to these roles for something that will come beyond the millennial kingdom? So let's go look at the scriptures provided by the questioner. Let's look first at Revelation chapter 1. Which is the promise to all believers that will be priests and kings. So we'll start in chapter 1 verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Do only men go to the churches in Asia? No. No. Grace to you and peace. Grace is a Greek greeting, peace, a Hebrew greeting. From him who is and who was and who is to come. That's our Messiah. In the book of Isaiah, that's a reference to God. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's Isaiah eleven two. It's found twice in the book of Revelation. And from Yeshua the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Tim, who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Tim, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Is there any mention in that verse about gender? about this is limited to some and not all. The answer to that is no. Let's go to Revelation 5.10 Revelation 5.10 includes in the new song being sung by the raptured and resurrected saints who are made up of both genders. And have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Doesn't say anything about half of us will or a quarter of us will. And then 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter comes before Revelation. Y'all knew that already. If I just flip the right direction now. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people but are now the people of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 2 and 3 do you not know that the saints will judge the world who are the saints Revelation fourteen twelve says those who have the faith in Messiah Yeshua and keep the commandments of God does it say anything about gender it does not and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more are things that pertain to this life? So, my first response to this is, will there be genders in heaven? I don't think so. In the angels in heaven, are they two genders? No. Does the scripture say we'll be like the angels? Yes, Yes, it does. When they ask Messiah, let's go back to the book of Matthew chapter 22. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection essentially is the question, seeing that she was married to all these different guys and lived with some she wasn't even married to. So here is the question that's put to Messiah. Starting in verse 23. The same day the Sadducees. What's the Hebrew word for Sadducee? Zadokim, Zadokim, meaning the righteous ones. Who gave them that title? They They did. They gave it to themselves. Yeah. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. eh. Does the Old Testament teach there's a resurrection? Yes, it's in Isaiah, it's in Psalms. Why then don't they believe in it? Because the they only believe the first five books written by Moses. They don't accept Isaiah, they don't accept the Psalms, they don't care what David said. So they came to him and asked him, saying, teacher, rabbi, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Is that true? Yeah, true. That is true, it's called a leverate marriage. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Yeshua answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. By scriptures, does he refer only to the first five books? No, he does not. So why don't they know the rest of it? Because they choose to reject it. For in their resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. The angels of God in heaven worship who? God. They worship the Lord. There is no two genders between angels. There is no marriage between angels. And when we get to heaven, the scripture says we will be like them. That is, given holy unto God. So look also at, at the book of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Verse 25. This is Mark's description of the same description. The same text. The same conversation. Mark 12:25 For when they rise from the dead they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven So my answer is the angels in the Bible are all male but that's just the ones we know about but there's no mention of any female angels in the Bible or elsewhere Genders are necessary for what purpose for procreation. for procreation. And there's no procreation among the angels in heaven. That's why they came down in Genesis 6 to find human women. Because they thought they were pretty. So, as far as the scripture reveals, we will not be marrying nor bearing children. So, there's no reason for genders. And as far as I can tell, every believer, male or female, is going to rule and reign in heaven as priests and kings. In Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew especially, when you're talking about a mixed-gender group, you always use the masculine terms. So even if it were to read kings and priests, meaning only referring to masculine in a mixed-gender group, you could read it kings and queens or priests and priestesses. But as far as I know, once we get to heaven, there isn't gender. Best I can do.
1: Seems like it
0: causes a lot of problems anyway. Seems like it caused a lot of problems anyway. Yeah, yeah, you could say that.
1: They
0: got the solution up in Washington, they can't
1: even define it. Yeah, I know, I know.
0: The next question comes from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. This question actually arises out of commentary that the questioner has been reading. Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. You can't find Genesis 1? I'll give you a hint. It's in the beginning. That Good. Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Then God said... Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. What's a firmament? A division. A division? Be more specific.
3: It's not covering. A covering. covering. An expansion. The word in Hebrew
0: means a dome. The word in Hebrew means a dome. It's talking about the atmosphere that separates the water on the ground from the water in the clouds. That's why the clouds don't normally sit upon the ground. Although I swear around here sometimes they do. But normally they're, uh, they're up above us. That firmament. And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. So that's day two of creation. And the questioner says, I read the following. Quote, this is from commentary. On the second day, Hayom Hasheni, God separated the sky and the seas, which foretold when Noah was separated from the world of men at the time of the great flood. The sages here note that the Torah does not say it was good on the second day because of the great judgment upon the earth. So what do you call that kind of a commentary?
1: Speculation.
0: I wouldn't say speculation I would say a midrash midrash means a teaching from trying to draw bits of information out of Um, it goes on to say conversely so they've read more than one commentary I read that quote because the work involving the water was not completed until the third day although he commenced it on the second day, and an unfinished thing is not in its fullness and its goodness. And on the third day, when he completed the work involving the water, and he commenced and completed another work, he reported therein, quote, that it was good, unquote, twice. Once for the completion of the work of the second day, and once for the completion of the work of that third day. Then the question asked: do you think God didn't declare the second day good because of what was going to happen with the flood? The answer is no, I don't think that at all. Or do you think it was the, quote, he wasn't finished, unquote, explanation, or neither, or both? So, pretty good question, and pretty open-ended for what do I think, but let me ask, in Genesis chapter 1, the scripture says, and it was good. How many times? Uh, how many times? Seven. Seven. Look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 4. And God saw, saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. In verse 10. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 18. We'll start in 17. God set them, the stars, the moon, the sun, In the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. Then in verse 21, so God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Verse 25, and God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And lastly, verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So seven times God says it is good. What does seven indicate as a number in biblical numerology? And gematria? Completion. Completion or perfection. So I go with the second explanation here that God doesn't say that it's good the seven times until things are complete. So as God was dividing the waters... It took more than one day to do that, which is interesting. Because how did God create the heavens and the earth? He spoke it into existence. So why did it cover two days? But fortunately, that question wasn't asked. (laughs) Alrighty, next question. I am confused regarding the quote, name, end quote, of the Creator. From Genesis 1 to Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 we see all creation being formed by Elohim Hebrew word 430 including man in Genesis 1-7. But in Genesis 2-4 it says Adonai the Tetragrammaton Hebrew word 3068 made the earth and the heavens. So was it I'm I'm diverting from the question was it Elohim, was it God, or was it Adonai, the Lord? The answer is yes. And in Genesis 2, verses 7 to 8, it says, Adonai, the Tetragrammaton, the Lord, formed man to breathe life into him. This is confusing. If we were to just look at these passages in Genesis, rather than John 1, 1, who does John 1, 1 say created things? Yeshua, Yeshua our Messiah. Colossians chapter 1 says, who created Yeshua or Messiah so is it God is it Yeshua or is it the Lord the answer is yes they're all one it says who would regard of the triunity was the creator so there's the essence of the question if we didn't know all the rest of that if we just looked at this text who would we think was the creator of heaven and earth so let's look at the verses given Genesis 1 1 I bet y'all can quote it in the Hebrew, right? Barishit Barat Elohim, eight, hashemayim eight haaretz, eight not eight, and that is the key to understanding this. So in Genesis one one, there's something in the Hebrew that doesn't get carried over to the English. Before the the heavens. Put an eight, which is an aleph-tav with a seri vowel. And before the earth, there's an aleph-tav with a seri vowel. Now let's look at Genesis 2-4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Why do they include both Lord and God? Lord is the name, God is the title. Lord is a name, God is a title. But is it saying that they're two separate individual beings? No, they're not. They're saying that the Tetragrammaton is God. They're okay, letting us know that, that, that the Tetragrammaton is God. Yes, I heard somebody on GoToMeeting. What
3: was that verse in Psalms?
0: The verse in Psalms? Okay.
3: The one you I know Genesis 1-1 and then what was
0: the second scripture? Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. Thank you. You're welcome. And then Genesis chapter 2 verses 7 and 8. And the Lord God formed man. Notice again, Lord and God used together to let us know it's not two separate individuals. For a man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed without getting too esoteric where does the Tetragrammaton come from the yod Hei vav it comes actually more specifically you're, you're correct but from Exodus chapter 3 verse 15 when the Lord says I will be whom I will be the yod indicates he, so it's not saying I will be, I'm God, but referring to the Lord as he will be, whom he will be. Exodus, Exodus 3.15. Let's turn over there and make sure I got it right, because you're looking like I got two heads.
1: Exodus
0: chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. But that's not what it says. It says what? I asher, Yeah, I will be whom I will be. Meaning God will be to you depending upon who you are to him. If you're a loving child, he's a loving father. If you're a hater of God, he's a righteous, wrathful judge. But you can't go around saying, I am who I am, because that's God. So they changed the Aleph, which is I, to the yo, which is he. So it's a way of referring to God as he will be whom he will be. Right? And it comes from Chayel. It does. Let's look also at John 1.1, as the question referenced John 1.1. John 1. Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. How do we know that that's referring to Messiah? What's that? Keep reading. Go down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That's our Messiah Yeshua. So if we go back up to John 1, 2, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So now, let's go back and answer the question. Go back to Genesis 1, 1. And I recommend highly the teaching that Daniel did on this topic if you have not heard it. And that is on the significance of the top. What does Messiah say in Revelation? I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's Greek. Did he speak Greek? He spoke Hebrew. He said, I am the Aleph and the Tav. So normally when you see an Aleph and Tav together as a um, direct object marker, let me just call it direct object marker, the vowel is a segol, a soft e. When you see it with a seri vowel, which is a long a, eight instead of et, it has a special significance. Um, let's look at some examples where that Aleph Tav is told to us that it represents Messiah. Let's go to Revelation 1.8. Revelation 1.8. Messiah says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's Greek. In Hebrew that would be I'm the Aleph and the Tav. So when I refer to the Aleph Tav. That's what I'm referring to. Is that 8. In Genesis 1. Let's look also at Revelation 1 verse 11. Again I'm the Alpha and the Omega. It's the Aleph and the Tav. Why didn't the translators of the Bible translate this Aleph Tav. So that we would know that it was in there. They don't put anything in English. Because they want you to think he spoke Greek, and they didn't have a clue what the Alpha and the Omega meant. At least that's my opinion. Then in Revelation 21 6, we see it again. It's weird that
2: they would put Alpha and Omega here, but then in chapter 19, they would transliterate Hallelujah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, why would you transliterate a Hebrew word if it was a Greek original? Yeah. Why would you translate podes for regal in Revelation 10? Why would you put saying comma, which is a Hebraic construct, if it was a Greek document? So it's not. But in Revelation 21.6, he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Aleph and the Tav. What is the Aleph? It's the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Tav is the last. If you form things with letters of the Hebrew alphabet, starting with Aleph and ending in Tav, what do you create? You create words. Is the word. Revelation 22:13 13 is the fourth time that he says in Revelation, I am the Aleph and the Tav. So, what does that Aleph and Tav with the seri vowel, like Genesis 1 1 means? Let's go back to Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, Bereshit, Barah created, Elohim, God, Eta Shemayim, the heavens, the Eta Aret, the earth. I'm going to read to you an article, at least a portion of an article, written by Gary Stearman, of prophecy in the news a long time ago it says in our last issue we spent some time examining the appearance of the of the a certain yep that's what he wrote of the a certain untranslatable Hebrew word as it appears in Genesis 1 1 and Habakkuk 3:13. where else do you find it Isaiah 5, there's many places. There's one that says, and they shall look upon me, Aleph Tav, whom they pierced. That's in, uh uh-huh, you're right. It says, this word is formed by the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. We noted that rabbinic scholars have called it the word of creation. They refer to it as a title of God signifying that he used all the letters of the alphabet to speak the created universe into existence. The first verse of Genesis refers to this act. Its seven Hebrew words are balanced around this amazing word, the Aleph and the Tav, pronounced eight as in the number eight. In Habakkuk 3.13, the word is centered between the Hebrew Yeshua and Mashiach, words that in the New Testament appear as Jesus in Christ. Jesus Christ is identified with the Hebrew alphabet and the wisdom involved in the meaning of each letter. As those Hebrew letters form an ABC into the wisdom of all that is, even so Jesus is the provider of that wisdom. No wonder John called him the Word. He is the Eight, the Aleph tom. The context speaks of the Lord as judge of the nations. The word does not normally translate into English and is sometimes called the untranslatable particle or the emphatic particle. In the original language, it lends grammatical strength. Yet at key points in scripture, it also appears as the signature of the Lord. It corresponds to the New Testament Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. In the opening chapter of Revelation Jesus identified himself to John in this way saying I am Alpha and Omega Revelation one eight. This word identifies him as the Lord of creation in Genesis and the Lord of judgment in Habakkuk. In the prophecy of Zechariah he is also identified by the appearance of this amazing two letter word. There he is shown to be the one who gave his life so that the redeemed Might be, and then I don't have the rest of the article. But this was from the 1990s, and Gary Stearman was saying they may not have translated that eight, that olive tab, but when you look at it, the title of the article is the signature of the Lord. So they recognized, or at least he did, that the olive tab told us that in Genesis 1:1, the creative force was our Messiah, Yeshua. So that's how I would answer that question. Any additions? Okay. The next one, I have no answer for really. So let's see what you guys can do with it. Why would God provide the physical and biological means for his angels to reproduce, Genesis 6-4, with human women to actually be capable of producing babies? God doesn't always explain why he does what he does, but I will have to tell you that angels are ministering spirits. They are spirits. They take on a human body when they desire to. For instance, let's go to Genesis chapter 18. Just as Messiah does in Genesis chapter 18. Abraham has just been circumcised at 99 years old. I wish he could take on human
1: body.
0: Yeah. <laughs> chapter 18 verse 1 says, Then the Lord, see how the word Lord is spelled? This is the Lord. Appeared to him by the terebinth trees, those are oak trees, of Mamre, that's in Hebron, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. Why is he just sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day? He's healing from the circumcision. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. One's the Lord, the other two are angels. But as far as Abraham can see, they're simply three men. Of course, it's
1: the whole trinity. yeah okay (laughs) Alternate
0: (laughs) alternate doctrine yeah so the point is they have the ability to take on a human form when they choose to why did God give them this ability because he uses them to convey messages to us does the new testament say that when we entertain a stranger we may entertain angels unaware that is we may think it's a flesh and blood human being but it's not If Messiah can take on a body like that as he did in Genesis chapter 18, and he did, then why did he have to be born of a virgin? Why couldn't he just show up one day and say, hey, nail me to a tree? Because he's got to be flesh and blood human being to be our kinsman. In Genesis chapter 18, he is in no way our kinsman. You cannot be redeemed by someone who's not a kinsman. So even though he takes on the appearance of a human body, he's still not a human. He's still not a flesh and blood, born human being, right? So wrap your head around that one. Yeah, wrap your head around that one. But you know, and I
2: thought about this too. He created the angels the way he created humans with free
1: will.
0: He created the angels as he did humans, free will. But hold that thought, because that's questions coming, and I don't want to have to make you repeat it. But you're absolutely correct. So the best answer I can give to this is we'll have to ask God when we see him. Why did he allow angels to have that capability? The scripture simply never says. But, okay Daniel, go ahead. Tell us about their free will because I'm probably going to go there anyway whether I mean to or not. If he
2: created them with the ability to reproduce and they had free will, so it's kind of like are you going to show impulse
0: That's exactly right. Are you a human male? I am yes. (laughs) Who can you have sex with, but according to the Word of God, your wife. Right. She's sitting there. Right. Can you just go pick any old woman you want at any point in time? The answer is no. Why? God expects us to have impulse control, to be faithful, to honor God, to be obedient. And the angels are of the same ilk. They have the ability to be faithful to God or not. And the angels in Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 said, Let me think. Worship God or have sex with these pretty women. And like the Baal Paor incident, where people said, Forget God, I'm going for the ladies. These fallen angels were wrong. Very wrong. And after the flood, did some of these fallen angels again have children by human women? The answer is yes. Goliath, the Anakim, etc. Some of them are bound in the great river Euphrates until the day of the Lord. Because it says why they're bound. Because they refuse to keep their proper abode. River. so white yeah the river Euphrates is about gone and what did they find when the water level got so low they found what looks like prison cells that are not man made that have now been exposed and there's a lot of prophecy teachers looking at those going if those were made by God I wonder if they held angels that have been bound under the river Euphrates for all these years
1: been all
0: well they look like cells like they've been cut out but they've not been cut out by human hands they say yeah so why does God allow things to tempt us why does he allow Satan in the garden of Eden to tempt Eve he could have said absolutely not but then what does it prove if we have no ability to sin if you choose God because you have no other choice is that a choice when you guys got married, would you be as happy if you had no choice? I don't know. I don't <laughs> I'm
1: kind of looking get, forward Given who I'm married to, yeah. All right.
0: So you got lucky this time. Okay. All right. <laughs>
1: you know, you've heard about reward and punishment. <laughs> she, she got punished and I got rewarded. I hear
0: you. <laughs> All right. Next question. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Again, I'm answering the questions to the best of my ability. Maybe they're not always good answers, but they're the best I know. When we see God, he may give us better ones. Okay. Man. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. says, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The question is why is the Greek word Hades, Greek word 86, used in Revelation 2014, when we have lots of evidence indicating that Revelation was written in Hebrew, not Greek? It is a good question. Again, let's look at the indications that tell us that Revelation was originally written in Hebrew. Look at Revelation chapter 19. In verse 1, in verse 3, and there's other verses like verse 6, you see where it says, Alleluia? That is transliterated Hebrew from Hallelu and Yah, which is the first half of the Tetragrammaton. So if you were writing Revelation in Greek, you would use a Greek word here, wouldn't you? Can you say hallelujah in Greek? No. You would say praise the Lord in Greek. So the fact that they transliterate it not just once but over and over is an indication that it's translated from Hebrew. Yes? And the uh,
1: Plater's Greek lexicon
2: also says that this is...
0: There's Greek lexicon, even admits that this is a transliteration, not a translation. But then they'll hold to the fact that this is, is probably <laughs> Greek, Yeah. Now go to Revelation 10. Revelation 10. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. Step back from your table for a minute. Push back and look down at your feet. Are your feet like pillars? No. Your legs are. Well, in Hebrew, from the tip of your toes to your knee is the Hebrew word regel. Spell it R-E-G-E-L. Regel. In Greek, there's a different word for foot, which is podes, than there is for leg. So here, regel can be translated as foot or leg, depending upon the context, and here they simply got it wrong. Unless, of course, the angel is lying on his back and has really long feet. <laughs> but that's not likely. So this is, again, a case where you can say this was clearly translated from Hebrew to Greek. And then if you go to Revelation chapter 5. And again you see many of this occurring throughout the book of Revelation. But Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song, comma, saying. That is a Hebrew construct. What does the word saying there mean? What follows is a quote. So they use Hebraic constructs. They mistranslate the word regel as podis and they transliterate alleluia instead of using Greek words for praise the Lord. So I agree with the questioner. There's plenty of evidence that Revelation was written in Hebrew and translated to Greek. So the question is why is the word Hades, Greek 86, used in Revelation 2014? When we have lots of evidence indicating that Revelation was written in Hebrew, not Greek. My response, the best I can do is in my opinion, the translators need you to believe that Revelation and all of the New Testament was written in Greek because lots of Christian doctrine requires it. The first thing you've got to know is if the New Testament was written in Greek, the Jewish people would have rejected it. Right? We know that from Hanukkah. We know that from the book of Acts. Go to the book of Acts. How did the Hebrew-speaking Jews feel about the Greek-speaking Jews? They looked down on them. Which tells you that the apostles, who were the Hebrew-speaking Jews, were not Greek-speaking Jews. Go to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there rose a complaint against the Hebrews. That's the Hebrew-speaking Jews. By the Hellenists, which are the Greek-speaking Jews, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And then it goes on to tell us that the 12 apostles are the Hebrew-speaking Jews being complained against. So to say they're going to write everything they write in Greek, first of all would mean they shouldn't be looking down at the Greek-speaking Jews if they themselves are Greek speakers. Second, then they don't intend Israel to receive the New Testament because Israel as a whole is going to reject it. There are a lot of Jews I've talked to in Israel say, why don't you believe Yeshua is the Messiah? And they'll say, well, because the New Testament's written in Greek. It's about a Greek God for a Greek people. It's not for us. And when you say, but it was originally written in Hebrew, they, they go, ah, I've never heard that before. But an example of a doctrine that doesn't hold up if Revelation was written in Hebrew, go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. So,
3: I think I have two questions. I'm trying to figure it out right now.
0: Okay, go ahead. So, if
3: Revelation was written in Hebrew originally, Mm -hmm. Um,
0: okay. I, I haven't got your question yet. I,
3: well, if it was written in Hebrew...
0: Uh-huh. And it then really translated into Greek Hebrew. for... <laughs> who, who changed it and, and when
3: was it changed? And, and would it belong not in the New Testament?
0: All the New Testament was written in Hebrew, as far as I can tell but in order to go out to the gentile world it's got to be translated into greek so to okay. the hebrews it can go in the hebrew language but to send to the greeks over in greece a hebrew manuscript would be like giving a mass in latin well, in well, most of the me united, united
3: I feel like states I really got cheated i mean i'm just finding this out right now and i'm thinking well why if if we he here why Was this changed? I mean, because everybody that I know that knew people, that knew people, you know, go back hundreds of years, you know, believed that it was Greek. Instead of. Yeah, everybody
0: knows that the New Testament was written in Greek. Mm -hmm. Now grab your pencil. Grab your pencil. Did I ask?
3: Do you understand? I do understand the question. I do. Okay, okay. I'm struggling with it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Let me give you a list of the early church fathers and what they said about the book of Matthew. Okay. This article specifically about Matthew. Papias, P-A-P-I-A-S. Okay. We know him from the years 150 to 170 A.D. That's when he was writing. Okay. Says Matthew composed the words speaking about the book of Matthew in the Hebrew dialect and each translated as he was able. This in the book. Um, by Eusebius called Ecclesiastical History in 3 colon 39 Irenaeus I-R-E-N-E-U-S wrote in 170 AD and he wrote Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect that's from the book Against Heresies in 3 colon 1 Origen O-R-I-G-E-N in the year 210 wrote the first gospel is written according to Matthew the same that once was a tax collector but afterwards an emissary of Yeshua the Messiah who having published it for the Jewish believers wrote it in Hebrew that's from Ecclesiastical History chapter 6 verse 25 Then Eusebius himself in 315 Common Era, he was the church historian for Constantine at the Council of Nicaea. It says Matthew also, having first proclaimed the gospel in Hebrew, when on the point of going also to the other nations, committed it to writing in his native tongue, and thus supplied the want of his presence to them by his writings. That's from Ecclesiastical History 3, twenty four. Pantanus, P-A-N-T-A, if you'd rather I can stop, but it, it keeps going. Pantanus says, penetrated as far as India it is reported that he found the gospel according to Matthew, which had been delivered before his arrival to some who had the knowledge of Messiah, to whom Bartholomew, one of the emissaries, as it is said, had proclaimed, and left them the writing of Matthew in Hebrew letters. That's also Ecclesiastical history. Epiphanius, E-P-I-P-H-A-N-I-U-S, in 370, also said it was written in Hebrew. Jerome in 382, written in Hebrew. Eshodad, I-S-H-O-D-A-D, in 850, said it was written in Hebrew.
3: Okay, okay, so... So I could
0: keep going. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that in the seminaries they say it was all written in Greek, they know better. But they needed to be written in Greek to support a lot of their doctrines. Let's go to Revelation one ten now and see why.
3: Okay, okay. You just given us giving me a lot here. There's a bunch more, but Yeah, yeah, but at what point in time did they decide to they decide to to change it to Greek for their
0: documents? Well, I'm sure that it was translated to Greek early on for the non-Jewish people. Right. So it was written in Hebrew, and then they had somebody like Luke translate it. Luke was Jewish, but he was a Greek-speaking Jew. Mm -hmm. So that's why Luke writes Acts and Luke. (coughs) God bless you. He traveled with Paul, and he helped Paul get the things out to the Gentile world, most of which spoke Greek and not Hebrew. But look at Revelation 1.10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now let me find for you the Council of Laodicea, Canon 29 which if you look it up yourself, is in Roman numerals, XXIX, 29. It says, quote, Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day, and if they can, resting then as Christians. But if, anybody, if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. That's Canon 29. So the Lord's day is from Revelation one ten. They say the Lord's day is Sunday. And their argument is this. Everywhere else in the Bible, everywhere, it says the day of the Lord. And everybody knows that's Shabbat. This doesn't say the day of the Lord. This is the Lord's day. So it must be a different day. Therefore it must be Sunday. You can't say the Lord's day in Hebrew. You can only say the day of the Lord. You can translate it to Greek as the Lord's day. But in Hebrew you can only say the day of the Lord. So Revelation has to be written in Greek. To support the Catholic Church's argument that in Revelation 1.10, John was referring to Sunday. Of course, John's not referring to Sunday at all. But he's referring to the day of the Lord, that thousand-year period from the rapture and resurrection to the new heavens and new earth. But their whole argument is, hey, it says the Lord is saying, not the day of the Lord. So it must be something different. Therefore, it must be Sunday.
3: And
0: that's when it began. Yep. So that's what I mean by there's many doctrines like that that require the New Testament to be written in Greek. Yes. You've heard the teaching from John chapter 20 about agape versus yeah. the other kind of loves.
3: Yeah.
0: All that's based upon it must have been Greek. They say the Messiah and the disciples would not have understood Hebrew. They would only understand Greek. Maybe Aramaic. Then why, did,
4: then, why the
0: then why did Lord speak to Paul in the Hebrew language? Why did Paul speak to the people in the Hebrew, 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 Hebrew language? language?
2: Why did the uh, centurion ask Paul? Why, can you speak Greek? Can you
0: even speak Greek? Yeah. So you have to ignore all that if you want to build doctrines mm-hmm. based upon the other. Um, what word would it have been if they translated, if they transliterated from the Hebrew? Sheol. Sheol is the grave, the, the waiting place of the dead. Hades, by the way, is the name of a pagan god. Yeah, the river Styx guy. Got to pay the boatman to get across the river Styx to the kingdom of Hades
4: guarded
0: by a two headed dog. Cerberus, is that the name of the two-headed yeah. dog?
4: Oh and that that look, look that word up and we'll see what's going on with yeah. the internet
0: with really. So let's not. <laughs> <laughs> let's instead go on to the next question. I don't, before you do that. Before, before I do that what was what um, Revelation 10 verse what for uh Regal and Potus? Uh, that was first one. Revelation 10 1. Yeah, let me just double-check. I'm yeah, sure it is. Yes. And Mary says yes, so it's <laughs> I correct. It right yeah. <laughs> Good and loud. It, that's something people have been saying is you got to get him closer to the microphone. I'm going to see if I can get a directional mic.
3: Especially when, when we're homeless, we We yeah.
0: yeah, that's the bottom line. They don't want to miss anything. Okay. So go ahead. Good and loud. Okay.
2: about a Greek god. Yes. Hades oh, is a Greek god.
0: Yeah, it's not the only Greek god that's mentioned. How about Apollyon? That's Apollo. Okay. Yeah.
2: That's a yeah. I mean, it just kind of furthers the, the
0: divide there. Yeah. If the, the New Testament. Testament's written in Greek would the Jews 2,000 years ago have said this is for us. Absolutely not. I don't
4: think that's the intention to keep that division.
0: I think so, too. To separate us. ah, uh, Hate but that. Let
1: me add something. Go ahead, Bob. I think we might have talked about this a year or two ago. Somewhere, I read or heard that a French monk clerk was visiting in Rome.
0: Dutile was his name.
1: And at the time, he observed that they were... The church was burning masses of Hebrew writings. Right. And he spotted a copy of Matthew in Hebrew and he snagged it and hid it under his cloak and took it back to France. Right. And that's probably one reason we don't have any Hebrew originals unless they're in the Vatican. Which they probably are.
0: Yep. I have a copy of Doudeley Matthew that I can send out to you if you want to see it. It's it's real, it's it's not fantasy. He's right. exactly right.
1: Yeah. So that yes. the original Matthew is definitely Hebrew and exists, but the the, the bulk of its scriptures were destroyed. Really also, was it Desputin in about three hundred AD? The, distribution and he was a Roman emperor a bad guy
0: Vespasian
1: he tried to burn any Christian literature which would have been in Hebrew so he was trying to wipe out Christianity from the Roman Empire back then and so he had a burning thing going on with anything related to that that cult you know Christianity
0: yep And the Dutile Matthew has all 14 names in each of the three sections of Matthew 1. So we know it's not translated from the Greek to the Hebrew, or it would have the omitted name as well. It's older than the Greek text. So if you want that, just send me an email and say, I'd like a copy. Uh, His copyright on it expired long ago. Next question, are we ready? Yes. But Bob's exactly right. His name was Dutilai. D-U-T-I-L-L-E-T, Dutile.
3: Dutile,
0: D-U-T-I-L-L-E-T, Dutile. I wonder if I have a few pages of it with me. Just send me an email if you want it. Otherwise, you can hope I will remember who says yes and who didn't, but um, if you knew my memory, you, you wouldn't. send
2: it out once?
0: I've sent it out before, I'm sure. Okay, All right, next question. I have often heard it said that the fallen angels cannot repent and angels cannot be redeemed because angels don't die. Is there anywhere in scripture that tells us this? The answer to that is no. And what is the difference between an angel that can't die and that part of a human being that exists into eternity beyond the physical body and therefore cannot die? But this doesn't apparently affect a human's ability to repent. If an angel can choose to sin as Satan and his fallen angels did, then why can't they choose to be remorseful and repentant? Yeah, good question. First thing, point number one, angels are ministering spirits. Go to Hebrews chapter one.
1: But again, Messiah did not die for the angels. He died for his kinsmen who were the humans.
0: Yeah, but we're only on point one. <laughs> but you're you're right. The Hebrews chapter one, verse fourteen. Hebrews 1, chapter 14, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are they, referring to the angels, back up to verse 13 if you don't know that, but to which of the angels has he ever said, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? They don't have a physical body, so they cannot die. That we know for certain says often they appear to be ordinary men as in Genesis chapter 18 verses 1 to 5 but that doesn't make them ordinary men they are ministering spirits who have the ability to appear in the form of men and let's look at Daniel chapter 10 verse 16 Daniel chapter 10 verse 16 And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Who is this? This is an angel. But he had the likeness of the sons of men, but he doesn't have a physical body that can die. And Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. So again, they can appear as if they're ordinary men. That was Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Yours doesn't say that. It does, if I read right it does if you're on the right verse. Yeah, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Okay. But they are spiritual beings, not mortal as we are. The fallen angels will eventually be cast in a lake of fire. How do we know that? It's in Matthew chapter 25. God says so. What you will not find in the scripture is a fallen angel repenting. Or asking for forgiveness. Um, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the eternal lake of fire was prepared for the devil and the fallen angels. They
4: committed high treason.
0: They committed high treason yes and we're getting there so there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that angels can die and there's nothing that suggests they can repent and there's a good reason for that first how are we different we have a physical mortal body once our once we receive our changed bodies then we will never die go to first Corinthians 15 but that's after the rapture and resurrection
3: they're in the
0: presence of God. That's the next point. Mm-hmm. When we finish this. Behold Salvation is by faith. Faith is believing in that which you have not seen. The fallen angels were in the very presence of God. According to Ezekiel, Satan covered God's throne with his own wings. Was there any doubt in the minds of the angels? Was there any temptation that... Led them astray. The answer is no. They had perfect knowledge of God and rebelled anyway. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 50 about how our bodies are different after the rapture and resurrection. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 15. Now this, I say, brethren. That flesh and blood cannot meaning is not able to inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit incorruption that is we cannot go to God's throne in a fleshly human body it's not possible Behold, I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet what's another term for the last trumpet yom feast of trumpets yom teruah Rosh Hashanah. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So we will take on a changed body that is immortal. One that cannot die. At that point we become very much like the angels. So nothing in the Bible suggests that angels have even the desire to repent. And if we go to Hebrews 6... It will reinforce the fact that, like Nancy said, the angels had perfect knowledge of God. They rebelled not out of a mistake or a lack of faith or they didn't know. They committed just absolute treason, as I heard somebody out here say, staring in the face of God. They didn't even have a fallen nature. They didn't even have a fallen nature. Nope. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. have tasted the heavenly gift, been filled by the Holy Spirit, we know the true and living God. If we turn away then, is it possible to come back and say, I changed my mind? The answer is no. Compare this to the angels. In God's presence, at God's throne, who spit in God's face. And again, we can't always go beyond the text and the words of the Bible. But is there anything at all in the scripture that suggests a fallen angel ever wanted to repent? If there is, I don't see it. You know,
2: the book of James says that the demons
0: believe, but it says they don't repent. It says they tremble. Book of the, the book of James says the fallen angels, the demons believe,
2: but don't repent.
0: But don't repent.
2: Right. It was like they, they knew who he was, but they never, it never says they repented or were remorseful. They just, it's like, we know who you are.
0: Yeah. And I know you've got a different view on demons. I saw the Koreans. I remember. Okay.
3: But, uh, it, you know, they are obedient, though. I mean, they have to obey.
0: They have to be obedient. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. yeah.
0: It's just
1: kind of interesting. Yeah. That's because there is a hierarchy in the spiritual realm. Yes, there is. those below must have been those above. Absolutely. But we have authority, Scripture says, over principalities. So as believers, we really should be taught to take that authority to rebuke Satan and his angels or his spirits, whatever, when they're acting on people. Uh, We have authority to rebuke those things. We don't necessarily have the power to control them, but we can rebuke them in Messiah's name and we can minister to those people that they've been causing trouble
0: to. And ultimately, Scripture says we're going to judge the angels. What's that for power? Ooh, that's big power. No red circles yet. So the next question. I like questions like this. What do we say to a Jew who says, quote, god would never ask for or endorse human sacrifice is that true absolutely true all you have to do is look at the story of the akeda the binding of isaac in genesis 22 Mm -hmm. sacrificing children's and no no so it says that's something the greek gods would have demanded that's true Moloch child sacrifice And who uses this as their basis, and who, that is the Jewish person, uses this as their basis to reject Yeshua as the Messiah? First question, was Yeshua sacrificed by a person? The answer is no. A sacrifice is I bring something to the altar and I kill it in my place. Did I bring Messiah to the place of crucifixion and kill him to shed his blood for me? The answer is no. He came of his own accord. That's not a sacrifice. That's different. But you're absolutely right. He could have called 10,000 angels. Why didn't he? He Because he loved us so much. Where would we be if he chose not to die?
1: Hopeless. We'd be just like Democrats.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Be careful. This is being recorded. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So... He was not sacrificed. He was an innocent man murdered by those who hate God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. But God allows the innocent to die in place of the guilty. That's what the sacrifices all teach us. Is that God will accept an innocent death in our place. At the sacrifices, God allows our sins to be transferred to an innocent animal As a type or picture. But God allows Messiah to take our sins upon him at his death. That he voluntarily chose to go to. Go to 2 Corinthians 5. And then we've got more to add. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 21. I I know so many people who are part of the Messianic movement. Who have rejected Messiah completely. Because one of the anti-missionaries says. Oh so you accept child sacrifice. They go no. God would never allow child sacrifice. Oh wait a minute. Then, then the Bible can't be true. But. It was not a sacrifice. Is the red heifer sacrificed? No. 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 Slaughtered. Messiah did not die on the altar in Jerusalem by our hand. He died outside of the temple like the red heifer does. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you think any one of us has the power or authority to sacrifice Messiah? No. no. Absolutely right. not.
1: That's a big
0: doctrinal okay.
4: mistake in yeah. certain religion. So if I have a memory, or two or three, it may be incorrect. Now, does not Paul refer to Messiah as a sacrifice? I was just looking it up. I mean, you know, I don't know if it isn't Galatians or uh, Ephesians, I don't know. Is that term not
0: used? Am I... We would have to look at the original text to see if it's translated it correctly, etc.
4: Right. But sure. where is it? Doesn't That's it what, say what I'm that trying
1: He's our Passover?
0: He's our Passover lamb. That is, he is the fulfillment of that, but that doesn't say he's a sacrifice. What about
1: propitiation? I'll... Actually... I asked the question, might have missed a very important scripture. Which one? The one that does talk about sacrificing humans. First, it says Romans chapter 12, verse 1.
0: Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Let's turn over there. Go ahead and read it.
1: I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Yep. So, you know, no one could object to that it's from the Jewish tradition that Paul, I mean, you know, Paul's Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he's the one that points out that the ultimate is to present to your body a living sacrifice.
0: Right. You're um,
1: not talking about taking somebody else's body and sacrificing it. They're right. You're talking about. The ultimate right. is you are the sacrifice yeah. willingly.
0: Bill is talking about First Corinthians 5 where he says um, in verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are leaven. For indeed, Messiah, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. But that doesn't mean that he was a sacrifice, that he was sacrificed. It means that he is the fulfillment of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. It was the type of teaching, but I want to look at the Greek word there. All
4: right, so then, instead of the term sacrifice, meaning taking an animal and killing it and presenting it as a sacrifice in that concept, the sacrifice would be more akin to where he sacrificed his... I don't know. A
0: sacrifice, you have to kill yourself.
4: Right, right.
0: but But... People uh, think that he, you took a sacrifice...
4: Up. He did not. He did not do... Uh, he did not insist on... Uh, uh, there's, that, that's a conundrum there. Uh, a quandary, I'd mm-hmm. But he did insist because he did it. But he did... he. Lord help me not confuse the issue with that <laughs> Okay. He, did, he didn't insist that, uh, he did it because he knew. He, sacri- he sacrificed his time, his effort, his power, his kingship. I guess it was like, you know, he took time out from doing, you know, the heavenly stuff in heaven to do it here oh, alright
1: so did he present his blood in heaven yes he
0: put his blood on the altar in heaven yeah. on the mercy seat yep.
1: so, so he fulfills the idea of a sacrifice but was right. a willing sacrifice and that's what Paul's encouraging us to do in to be like Yeshua
0: yeah. yep. to present your blood. Paul's explaining in 1 Corinthians 5 why they don't need to sacrifice a lamb because Messiah yes. fulfills it yes sir okay
2: looked up the word sacrifice in in the uh, Strong's.
0: You looked up the Strong's word, okay. Hopefully you, you went to a lexicon. I did. Okay, good.
2: Yeah. It says that the word can mean to sacrifice, but it can also mean to slaughter or to kill.
0: Yeah. So he died for us is a good way to put it.
3: And Yeshua said... Greater love has no man than he lay down his
0: life. Right, then he lay down his life for a friend, a sacrifice you have to kill. That's a,
3: that's a, that's a good distinction.
0: Very good. It is. It was a good question. I and like, I like all to these lay questions. Down up to the it.
3: altar and just. You know,
5: <laughs> yes, Edmund. Green, It seems to me that there's a. Um, I always think they present yourself as a living sacrifice. Uh, Jesus has been sacrificed and it reminds me of the scapegoat um, because although later interpretation of the one released out into the wilderness was that it was pushed over a cliff the earlier position was it was just set free so that is a living sacrifice okay the the one that's taken out into the desert and left which is certainly the earlier position of how it was interpreting interpreted that would be a living sacrifice so i always connect jesus is the one that dies we are the one that go free as a result but we are nevertheless a sacrifice but we are um you know we go out Beyond the knowledge of... Good. Do you think that's a reasonable
0: yes. parallel? Yes, and thank you for adding that. Okay, so yes.
2: I'm not trying to belabor the point. Understood. Understood. Alright, so in the Thayer's Greek lexicon...
0: In the Thayer's Greek lexicon... The same word... That same word...
2: That's translated in First Corinthians 5 as sacrifice. Uh huh. It says here, it says it's used in the Septuagint as this Greek word for... Zabak, which is sacrifice, mm-hmm. but also for shachat, which means to slay or to slaughter.
0: Yeah, slay, slaughter, or kill. Kill.
2: So, and it's not the same word used in Romans 12:1 as the living sacrifice. I'll have right. To look, I'll have to look more. At that
0: one. <laughs> Good.
2: But this word can be used interchangeably with sacrifice yep. and
0: slaughter. So Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 5 is we don't have to go sacrifice a lamb because Messiah died for us.
4: And it would not surprise me to find out in the kingdom that a lot of translation stuff was changed so as to divert us from the truth.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. We have time for one more. Let's go to first.
2: I'm
0: sorry? Maybe they didn't mean to cut it. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. In the New Testament, all the T's are right together in alphabetical order, right? So let me find one. There we go. 1 Timothy, not 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 4. Let me read it. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, to which I say we can't stop at four. We have to include five. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So it's important to include verse five. So the question reads, we have understood this to be referring to the teachings of ascetic Gnosticism. Yep, if it tastes good you can't have it. If it feels good, you can't do it. Since so then that they teach the principle that one should reject anything enjoyable, but how does ascetic Gnosticism fit into or have any influence in twenty twenty two? If we are as we believe in the Ahrit Hayamim, what influence does Gnosticism actually have today? The first response is, we're not in the akhirit hayyamim. The end of days is a technical term in the Hebrew language for what you and I would call the day of the Lord. We're not there yet. But beyond that, the question is, what does ascetic Gnosticism have to do with us today? Well, ascetic Gnosticism underlies some Catholic doctrines, some Mormon doctrines, some Seventh Day Adventist doctrines, etc. Something that has been coming out recently, because of the actions of the World Economic Forum, one of the things they're pushing people to do is to what? Stop eating beef, because cows burp and fart. So therefore, stop eating the foods that God said. And replace it with what? Crickets. Crickets. Insects that God said are forbidden. So they want to replace that which God said we can eat with that which God said we cannot. That's from ascetic Gnosticism. And what do we I think, think
1: they're morning. eating in Davos right now?
0: Why do we think they're eating? Davos right now, shrimps and T bones and no lobsters crickets. and flying in on private jets, etc. Yeah, crickets are not on the menu. Or do we hear? And do PETA members try and get us to stop eating meat? PETA? Mm-hmm.
4: Well, you know, if you if you eat vegetables only and they go out there and they kill every mole, every cricket, every bird, you know, in order to get a maximum from their crop. And people want to stand on the moral issue of you're killing a living thing, well then why eat anything at all? I mean, because worms are killed and you know, when they put all that chemicals in the ground and everything Sure,
0: else. sure. It's not about not hurting animals. It's about getting people to stop doing that which God said God we could said. do and follow somebody else. The question's not over. That was just an interim. If First Timothy 4, 1 to 4 is about the end times, why aren't we seeing marriage being prohibited when instead marriage has been open to everyone? Oh, are Catholic priests permitted to marry? Not
1: yet. Nope.
0: They are not.
1: The marriage has gone down year by year because of this... Uh, Left-wing culture and all the—I've just read that the other day.
0: Yep, marriage is on the decline. Men and women just live together because, well, the commandments don't apply anymore anyway. Why get so why get married? But the question goes on. It's been open up to everyone: men with men, women with women, even people with their animals. One man married his computer. Remember says so we're close to a time when we see forbidding or eating food as we see the woke movement wanting us to move towards synthetic proteins and GMO crops and eating bugs and vegan foods and away from traditional crops and clean foods such as lamb, beef, and poultry. So are we not quite there yet in terms of being in the Ocarit Halyamim of 1 Timothy 4, 1-4? to That's correct. We're not quite there yet. But we can see it all on the horizon.
3: Would you translate that for me, please?
0: Akharitayumim is the end of days. Oh, go to Isaiah chapter okay. two. Well, you know, but go I'm to Isaiah so chapter two.
3: Because we, we're living in two different worlds right now. We're, we live according to the word of God, and the ones that are thinking that way and, and they're living upside down. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. So,
0: but if you go to Isaiah two two, I'm going to show you where Akharitayumim appears in the Bible. Chapter 2,
3: verse Uh
0: 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Remember, I've had you change that. The Mm Hebrew is the Akhir Itayim, which is the end of days, capitalized in a Jewish published Bible. It's the same thing as you and I would call the day of the Lord. That period from the rapture and resurrection to the new heavens and new earth. Are we there yet? Not yet. But more and more as Davos and the World Economic Forum and all that's taken hold, they're pushing us more and more toward First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. So who teaches us we can't eat meat? It's not God. It's the anti-God movement. Who teaches us that we can't marry? It's not God. It's the anti-God forces and there's a lot of ascetic Gnosticism in the Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, Seventh-day Adventist Church, etc. The Catholics
1: say,
3: Paul said, Dr.
0: <laughs> but did he say, I forbid you to marry? No.
1: And just- if
0: you want to teach the word of God, you're forbidden to marry? The answer, of course, is no. <laughs> so we've run out of time. Let me stop here. We'll pick up next time on page 25.